0: doing well this morning. Let's uh, go to the Lord in a word of prayer and then we'll go to our text. Our Father, we do thank you for this day that you have given to us an opportunity that we have to gather together as believers and gather around your word. We pray that we would be fed this morning. We pray that your word would find fertile soil and that it would take root all for the glory of Christ our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll read verses 5 through 16. Just as you're uh turning there, I want to say how grateful I am to have this opportunity to come and preach God's word. It does uh I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage though because uh um You know, when you just preach occasionally, you kind of have to jump right into the middle of the text. Whereas otherwise, uh, like Jim does every week, uh, plowing through a book. And so you have the full context when you get to the text that you're looking at that particular Sunday morning. And so we're going to read the passage and then I'll give you a little bit of the context, what's going on with the scene here. And then we'll we'll progress verse by verse through it. So beginning in verse five, 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verse five. Paul writes, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to the innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the, or for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. We will focus our attention this morning on verses 5 through 11, but I wanted to read all the way through uh, into verse 13 to give you a little bit uh, fuller flavor of what's going on. But uh, the context here, the Apostle Paul set out on his second missionary journey, and he came to the city of Corinth. And there in Corinth, he preached the gospel, and a number of people were saved, and Paul spent about 18 months with these new believers. They, they began a church there. Paul did a church plant there in Corinth. number of people were saved, and so he spent about a year and a half with these new believers in Corinth trying to grow them up, trying to mature them in their understanding of the gospel, mature them in, the, in their relationship with Christ, their understanding of, of the scriptures, And when he felt like they had reached a level in which they could carry things on in his absence, Paul then left Corinth and went to other destinations to preach the gospel. After he left Corinth, he went to went to Ephesus. Well, Paul may have left a little bit prematurely because he got word from a lady back in Corinth named Chloe, and Chloe informed that the informed the apostle Paul that things were not going well in Corinth, that there was gross sin in the church, just unimaginable sin, and when Paul heard about this, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians, sent that letter uh, to the church in Corinth, and then uh, the church in Corinth received this letter, we don't have that letter, they wrote Paul a letter back, and in this letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul, uh, they told Paul that uh, that. Uh, factions had developed within the church, divisions among the brethren, and they also had some questions about various issues dealing with marriage, uh, dealing with spiritual gifts. And so when Paul received this letter from the Corinthians, then he wrote another letter back to the Corinthians, and that letter is what we have as the book of 1 Corinthians, in which he answered some of those issues that they raised, some of the questions that they had, and he also was trying to deal with some of the divisions and factions. But unfortunately, things just got worse. The wheels were just coming off in the church in Corinth. And there had arisen by this time false apostles, some self-appointed apostles, men who just decided to call themselves apostles. And I'm really glad that we don't have to worry about anything like that today. I mean, nobody would... Nobody would dare be brazen enough to call himself an apostle nowadays. So good thing that that's, you know, a thing in the past, right? Wink, wink. So things were just getting worse. And these apostles were teaching bad doctrine. And they were also turning the Corinthians against Paul. And he heard about this. And the factions and the, the antagonism, the Corinthians had actually turned against Paul. And so Paul wrote another letter to them. Uh, what he called the tearful letter. And I'll read to you. He mentioned this in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. I'll just read it to you. Paul writes, I wrote out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. So Paul was grieved over what was going on in Corinth. He loved these people. They were his spiritual children, if you will. He loved them. But they had turned against them, and he was very grieved by that. And after the tearful letter was sent to them, Paul then himself went to Corinth from Ephesus about 230 miles as the crow flies across the sea. Uh, To go on land, he would have had to go way up north and then down south would have much further trip. So about eight days boat trip across the sea, 230 miles to Corinth, and he wasn't real sure what he would when he got there, uh, he called this the painful visit in chapter 2, verse 1. He, he references this painful visit, and this is what this was. And when he got there, it was really bad. The Corinthians absolutely rejected Paul. And Paul was openly insulted, probably by one of these so called apostles, self appointed apostles. Openly insulted. They completely rejected him. It was a painful visit. And so Paul then went back to Ephesus, stayed in Ephesus for a while. He just removed himself from the situation, completely broken, completely grieved, hoping that maybe with some passage of time, the Corinthians would kind of come to their senses. They would realize that these self-appointed apostles were just exploiting them. They would uh, remember his love for them. They would remember how he started the church there. So we hoped this passage of time would do that, but it didn't. It didn't. Things just continued to get worse. And Paul left Ephesus. Um, he sent this. He sent this letter, the painful letter uh, that he wrote after this visit. He sent this letter by Titus. Titus was uh, a man, a young man that Paul had led to Christ. Titus probably was with Paul on his second missionary journey when Paul first got to Corinth, first preached the gospel. The church was born. Titus was probably with him. And so Paul sent this letter via Titus and things just got worse. He left, he left Ephesus, went up to Troas and the Bible says that, that God had opened a door for him to preach there in Troas, but Paul was so concerned about how this letter was going to be received that he couldn't even preach. His mind was just consumed with what was going on in Corinth and he couldn't even preach in Troas. So he left Troas and set out to try to find Titus. To set out, try to find out how the Corinthians received his letter. Okay, he was so vexed apart, so consumed, you know, he thought, is this going to make matters worse? Is this just going to exacerbate the situation? How are they going to receive Titus? His, he was worried, he was consumed with concern about how that letter was going to be received. And so he left Troas hoping to just find Titus. That's what he wanted to do. Just I've got to find Titus. I've got to find Titus. I've got to see what's going on. And then in God's providence, he does find Titus. And this is where we pick up. Verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without fears within. Notice the plural here. Conflicts without fears within. I want to read to you just a little bit of Paul's conflicts. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to flip over a couple of pages. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. The most detailed account we have of Paul's afflictions. Chapter 11, beginning verse 23, Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, I have been in labor and hardship, Through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold exposure, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Apart from those things, everything was going great. Dangers without, dangers within. All of these things, shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, stoned, starving, cold, all of these things. And he said, aside from all of this, aside from all this, I have the concern for the churches. The physical things were hard enough. You know, it doesn't sound like Paul was having his best life now. The physical things were hard enough. But what concerned him even more than all of these other things, his concern for the churches. He loved The churches. He loved his brethren. He loved his spiritual children. That is what concerned him most. And this is what concerned him so much about what was going on in the church in Corinth. Paul said he had this concern for Corinth. He had it for other churches. In Galatians chapter 4 verse 11, Paul says that I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. That is what consumed Paul. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. He said much the same thing to the Thessalonian church, church in Thessaloniki. But God, verse 6, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Job chapter 5 verse 7, Job says that man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Trouble is the natural state Of humanity. Ever since the fall. Man is born into trouble. All of us meet trouble. As the sparks fly upward. None of us is getting out of this thing. And so acute was Paul's trouble. That the Bible calls him depressed. Paul admitted of himself. He said I am depressed. He's depressed. Going through a spiritual valley. Is nothing of which to be ashamed. Going through tough times, especially extended tough times, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It happens to all of us. It happened to Martin Luther. It happened to Charles Spurgeon. And it happened to the Apostle Paul. This was the Apostle Paul. This was the man who wrote roughly half of the New Testament. This was the man who, who 14 years before this, was caught up into the third heaven and heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to speak. And yet he says of himself he was depressed. He was depressed. All of these pressures, especially the concern that he had for the church. But God, but God, two of the most powerful words in all of Scripture, but God comforted Paul. How did God comfort Paul? Did Paul seek comfort from a bottle? Did he seek a Seek comfort? Did he seek relief from his depression from a, a pill? From liquor? From going to a Tony Robbins self-help motivational seminar? No. But God comforted us by the coming of Titus. By the coming of Titus. And why did this comfort Paul so much? Wherever they met, met up, and it's hard to tell exactly where they finally met one another, but Titus brought Paul good news. From the church in Corinth. Good news that the Corinthians had repented. Paul, your letter worked. The Corinthians repented. The Corinthians repented. And Paul was refreshed by this. It was like meeting Titus and hearing this good news from the church in Corinth. It was like a starving man, or a a man dying of thirst out in the desert. And Paul was, uh, Titus was a drink from, you know, a tall glass of cold water. It refreshed him. Paul did not need refreshing from self-help, from a motivational speech. He did not need refreshing from alcohol. He did not need a pill. He was comforted by the fellowship of his brother, Titus. He was comforted by the sufficiency of God's Word. That is what brought him comfort. Nothing external, the sufficiency of God's Word, in the good news that the church in Corinth had repented. He comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Dear friends, God's word is sufficient. Everything that we need is in Christ. Not in a pill, not in liquor, not in self-help, happy talk. Everything is in Christ. And Paul says, verse 7, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, As he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. Their longing, their mourning, their zeal. Paul was refreshed by this because even though the Corinthians were in sin, terrible sin, unimaginable sin, and the first couple of attempts to correct them didn't work. But finally, finally, they bent the knee to the truth of God's word and they repented. And this is one of the Marks of a genuine believer. Undoubtedly, in the church of Corinth, just like any church you have today, you've got a mixture of truly regenerate people and people who are only professing Christians. But one of the marks of a truly regenerate person is that he may be in error, serious error, theological error, error, even, even moral sin, but when confronted with the truth of God's word, given enough time, that person is going to be in the need. That person is going to repent. That is one of the marks of a believer. And Paul was refreshed by this. It was like a drink from a tall, cold glass of water. It refreshed him to see their repentance, to see their zeal, to see their mourning, that they had bent the knee to the truth of God's word. Someone who remains in sin, who remains in theological error, significant theological error, even after they are confronted with the truth of God's word, if they remain obstinate, if they remain in their rebellion indefinitely, that is not the mark of a believer. That is not the mark of a believer. But the Corinthians finally did bend the knee to the truth. You know, undoubtedly, when Paul was writing this painful letter, I mean, he says right here he was anguished. He wrote that letter not knowing how it was going to be received. He had no idea how it was going to be received. He had no idea how Titus was going to be received. What are they going to do with Titus? How are they going to receive him? Are they going to hurt him? You know, he had no idea. And notice here in the next verse, verse 8, Paul says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I love this verse. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and by the way, if you have the King James Version, a little parenthetical reference here, if you have the King James Version, the King James says, uh, Paul says, instead of saying, though I regret it, the King James says, uh, I repented for a little while. That's not the right rendering. The word here in the Greek is meta. meta Metamelamite. Metamelamite. That means regret. Metanoia means repent. Two different words. I don't know how the King James translators got this one wrong, but they did. Paul is not saying I repented, he's saying I regretted it. I regretted it. Though I didn't regret it, but I regretted it for a little while. Almost seems a little schizophrenic, does it not? What Paul is saying here is when he wrote that letter and he sent it off, initially for a while he was worried What have I done? What have I done? Was this really the right thing to do? And he regretted it for a little while. He regretted sending that letter for a little while. What have I done? But then he says, I only regretted it for a little while. You see, after the emotion died down, his theology kicked in. His theology kicked in. Now, this is the Apostle Paul, dear ones. This is the man who wrote half the New Testament. And even he struggled. Was this really the right thing to do? His emotions, his, his love for the Corinthians was so intense. His desire to see them repent was so intense. Even he began to second doubt, uh, second guess himself. That What have I done? But then his theology kicked in. Only regretted it for a little while. Even before he knew how they would receive the letter, before he had any idea that they would end up repenting, He no longer regretted it. Because, dear friends, we never have to wonder if doing the right thing is the right thing to do. We never have to wonder if doing the right thing is the right thing to do. It always is. Regardless of the outcome, doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. We are not guaranteed the outcome, but when we do the right thing, we can go to sleep at night and have the blessing of a clear conscience. Last time I had opportunity to preach, preached out of Daniel. And we contrasted how God honored the obedience of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, blessed them with a, a physical, uh, tangible blessing for their obedience. But we read in Hebrews chapter 11 how these people were obedient. They were faithful, and yet they were martyred for their faith in God, their obedience. They never saw the physical blessing. But obedience in and of itself is the blessing. Being obedient to God is the blessing. Whether or not we see physical results, when we are obedient to God's word, we can go to bed at night, we can lay our head down, and have the blessing of a clear conscience. Paul said, I regretted it, but only for a little while. Only for a little while. Tough love, too. The Apostle Paul gave them tough love. He knew they were sin, in sin. He knew they were being disobedient. And he confronted them. Now, it would have been far easier for Paul to just say, you know, to be their friends. Just say, hey guys, you know, I know things have been tough, but, you know, I love you and, and, uh, let's just, let's just let bygones be bygones and not confront them in their sin. It would have been far easier to have done that. You know, oh, we're still Christians, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, it's okay. We we won't worry about your sin. It's all right, we'll we'll overlook that. Let's just let's just be friends. I'll be your buddy. But he couldn't do that. His conscience wouldn't let him do that. Because he knew what the Corinthians needed was tough love, not misplaced love, and people when we see someone who is in sin who is in error if we do not confront that person then that's not love that's hate that's hate if we truly love someone and we see they're going the wrong direction we see they're in sin we see they're they're doing injury to themselves we see that they're doing injury to the to the gospel and bringing reproach on the gospel the most loving thing we can possibly do is to confront them if you want to hate somebody see they are in error See, they are in sin. Don't tell them. Don't tell them. That is the most acute expression of hatred that we could possibly manifest. But Paul loved the Corinthians. And he loved Christ. And so he did the loving thing. He confronted them in their sin. Now, let's go back to the text. Verse 9. I now rejoice. Not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are are made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a, a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. This is something that unfortunately is not preached nearly enough. This text right here, Paul talks about two different kinds of sorrow over sin. Paul discusses a worldly sorrow. And he says that a worldly sorrow leads to death, spiritual death, eternal death. What is a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow is a guilty conscience. A worldly sorrow is something that everybody has. You know, you don't have to teach a man that it's wrong to lie. You don't have to teach a man that it's wrong to steal. You don't have to teach a man that it's wrong to murder. We know these things instinctively. God gave us a conscience. We do these things knowing that they are wrong. And so what is a worldly sorrow? Sense of guilt. A desire to cover up our sins. A worldly sorrow is that sorrow that says, what would happen to me if my sin were exposed? And so we try to cover our sin. What would be the consequences to me when we are concerned about ourselves? That is a worldly sorrow. And a worldly sorrow leads to death. If a man or a woman dies in a worldly sorrow over sin, he will die and spend all of eternity enduring the wrath of God. A worldly sorrow. What would be the consequences to me? And rather than confess our sin, rather than repent of our sin, we try to cover it up. That's a worldly sorrow. But a godly sorrow, a godly sorrow, the Apostle Paul says, leads to repentance unto salvation. What is a godly sorrow? A godly sorrow is that sin that is vertically oriented. A godly sorrow is that is that sorrow that comes when we understand That our sin is first and foremost against God. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David and Bathsheba. Remember this? When David was walking up on his roof and he saw Bathsheba bathing, who was married to Uriah, but Uriah was not there. He was off, away. And lust was conceived in David's heart. And so he had some of his men go and get Bathsheba and bring, he brought, they uh, brought Bathsheba to him. And he slept with her she conceived, and she came back later, told David, I'm pregnant. And David knew the gig was up. He knew that he was about to be exposed because Uriah wasn't there. And so David arranged it that Uriah would be sent to battle, and he would be put on the front lines in battle, in the hottest part of the the battle. And he had given his men secret orders. He said, at the heat of the battle, withdraw from him leave him exposed, and he knew that Uriah would be killed. And he was. And he was. David covered his sin. He covered his tracks. He wasn't concerned about Bathsheba. He wasn't concerned about Uriah. He certainly was not concerned about God at the time. He was concerned about himself. He tried to cover his sin. That's a worldly sorrow. And then the next chapter, I'm paraphrasing all this, but the next chapter, chapter 12, what happened? Nathan came to him. The prophet Nathan came to David. And told him this, gave him this illustration of two different men, a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man exploited the poor man and took something away from him that was very precious to him. And when David heard this story, it enraged him. It made him angry. And he said, the rich man, he should die. And Nathan looked at him and he said, you are the man. You are the man. He confronted him. David was caught. His sin exposed. And what happened? David repented. David repented. And we see his repentance in Psalm chapter 38. We see it in Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51, David said, prayed to God, he said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression. And my sin is ever before me. For against you, O Lord, against you and you alone, I have sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. Against you and you alone. And then David said, so you are justified when you speak. And you are blameless when you judge. David was confronted in his sin. And it grieved him. He had a godly sorrow. He owned his sin. Sometimes when a person is confronted and sin is exposed, that is not necessarily in and of itself going to lead to a godly sorrow. Sometimes it just leads to further covering up and a further entrenchment into worldly sorrow, to be caught in sin. That happens. It may bring bring shame, but not a godly shame. It may bring embarrassment, but not because we've sinned against God. Again, we're concerned about what happens to us, the shame that comes to us, worldly sorrow. But sometimes, getting caught, confrontation can lead to a godly sorrow over sin. And this is what happened with David. Getting caught can lead to a godly sorrow. It happened with David. It happened with Peter. Remember when Paul confronted Peter to his face? It happened here with the Corinthians. Paul confronted the Corinthians and they were broken over their sins. And Paul says, I did not want you to suffer lost through us. Now, what that means, this reference Paul saying, uh, he's saying to the Corinthians, you're in a position where I can help you. I am an apostle. I preach the gospel to you. I spent a year and a half with you. I love you and I want to help you. I can there. You can have benefits from my teaching. He says, if you had remained in your sin, you would have suffered lost from that. You wouldn't have received those benefits. You wouldn't have received these blessings. And he did not want them to suffer that loss. In verse 11, verse 11, Paul says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has now produced in you. For behold, Paul is, it's like a, it's like an exclamation point. Paul Paul is so refreshed by Titus. He's so refreshed by the news that Titus brought. It's like this weight has been lifted off his shoulders. And the thing that he was most hoping for, most praying for, that the Corinthians would repent. And they did. And when he heard that, he said, for behold, for behold, he was joyful. For behold, what a good thing has been produced in you, this godly sorrow. And then look at all of the exclamations here. He says. What earnestness! Uh, what vindication! What indignation! What fear! What longing! What zeal! What avenging of wrong! Uh, exclamation after exclamation! He's just overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed at the faithfulness of God, and he is so joyful by their repentance. What longing! What mourning! What zeal! It's like it's just—he's overflowing, overflowing with joy. In verse 11 is the most detailed verse in all of the New Testament, anywhere in all of Scripture, really, the most detailed exposition, if you will, of what real repentance looks like. Seven elements in genuine repentance. Let's look at this. The first one, seven characteristics. Paul says, look at the good fruit this godly sorrow has wrought in you. And the first one, what earnestness. What earnestness. The Corinthians were eager for righteousness. Their indifference towards Paul and their indifference towards sin had been replaced with eagerness. Before, they were indifferent towards Paul. In fact, they didn't like him. And they were certainly indifferent towards sin. But now, Paul says, what earnestness. You're earnest in your desire to repent. That's the first godly fruit, good fruit of a godly sorrow. second one. What vindication of yourselves what vindication of yourselves Paul is amazed at this the word here in the Greek the vindication is apologian and that is the word that we get the uh, the word apologetics to give a a defense of the faith Paul saying what vindication of yourself what a what a speech of defense for yourselves not that they were trying to excuse themselves that's not the point at all. the Corinthians had a desire to clear their name. They wanted to vindicate themselves. They had repented and they did not want to be associated with that sin any longer. What vindication of yourselves. In other words, once they repented, they wanted to remove themselves as far from their past sin as they possibly could. They wanted to get as far away from it as they possibly could. They wanted to have nothing to do with it. They didn't want to hold on to it. They didn't want to keep a little bit of their sin in their back pocket just to enjoy it every once in a while. Complete distance. Not only for their own spiritual well-being, not only for their own witness, but they wanted all of the other people, unbelievers, that knew of them and knew how they were living, they wanted all of these other people to know That they had repented. They did not want to bring reproach on the gospel. Reproach on the name of Christ. So they distanced themselves as far as they possibly could. They did not want sin to even be named among them. All the people that knew of their previous sin. Now the Corinthians wanted those same people to know of their repentance. What indignation, Paul says. Indignation. This is a very strong word. It's actually only used one time here in the New Testament. It's a very strong word, and this means strong opposition, hatred, loathing, anger. It is a very strong word. It's only found here. Paul says, what indignation? Indignation against what? Indignation against their sin. They hated it. They hated it. They wanted to put it to death. Romans 8.13, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. We are to go to war against our sin. They hated their sin. And that is one of the marks, again, of a genuine believer. It's not that a genuine believer cannot sin. We can and we do. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That is written to believers. That's not a salvation passage. That's written to believers. So, yes, we can stumble into sin, but a Christian does not swim in it. A Christian does not enjoy it. A Christian hates his sin. Read Romans chapter 7. Paul, even struggling with his own sin, he loathed it. He hated it. And the Corinthians hated their sin, and they wanted to distance themselves from it. Ephesians 4.26 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, a lot of us, when we hear that verse, we think it means just, you know, having a a squabble with your spouse. And you don't want to go to bed and let the sun go down on your anger. You don't want to go to bed mad at each other. That's what we're all taught that that verse means. That's not what that verse means. That's not what that verse is talking about. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Anger against what? Not anger against your spouse. Not anger against your kids. Anger against your sin. The object of that anger in Ephesians 4, it's not your spouse or your kids or the dog. it's your sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger against your sin. In other words, never get to the point where you do not hate your sin. Never get to that point. Always hate your sin. Don't ever let up. Hate it put to death the deeds of the body. And this is what the Corinthians hated. They hated their sin. It grieved them because they know that their sin grieved God. Don't let the sun go down on your anger against your sin. What fear, Paul says, fear of what? Fear of God. What fear of God you have. Now, as believers, we do not have to fear what we call the eschatological wrath of God. In other words, if you're a believer, if you've been born again, you're regenerated in Christ, you're a new creation in Him, then you no longer have to fear God's wrath. You no longer have to fear His wrath, His eschatological wrath, the wrath that God will pour out on the ungodly for all of eternity. That fear has been removed. We don't have to fear that anymore. So what do we fear? We fear God in the sense that we are in reverence of him, and we are in reverence and in awe of who he is. And so there is a healthy fear, even as believers, a healthy fear, a healthy awe that we have of God. Hebrews chapter 12 mentions this, verses 28 through 29. It says that we are to have a reverence for God. This is the fear of God, a reverence for God. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. He is Purely holy. His holiness blazes with the intensity of a million suns. And yes, we should have fear of that. Reverence for that. awe of that. We should fear his discipline. If we disobey him. But his wrath. His eschatological wrath. That is something that has been removed. We do not fear that. But we still have this reverential awe of God. The Corinthians did. and Paul was amazed at that. What fear. You have, finally, you have fear of God. Paul says, he continues, he says, what longing. Longing? The Corinthians longed to see their relationship with Christ restored and their relationship with Paul restored. They realized how horribly they had treated him. They realized that they had followed after the pied piping of these false apostles. They had believed their lives, and they treated Paul horribly. And they grieved over that. And they long for that relationship to be restored. And you know, friends, this is not just a, oops, I'm sorry. You know, this is not like you bump into somebody accidentally in the grocery store aisle and say, oh, sorry about that. This is a lot more serious. To restore a relationship, a broken relationship, a relationship that has been broken over sin, that requires a lot more than a, oops. That's going to take time. you're going to have to put an effort at at restoring that relationship. And if you're serious about it, if you seriously desire to have that relationship restored, then that earnestness will bear forth in all of the fruit that we're looking at here in verse 11. Longing for restoration. A lot more than just an oops. Zeal. Paul says, what zeal? And zeal is a lot more than just having an eager, can-do attitude. Zeal is a lot more than just being excited or you know temporarily uh, you know worked up for something and no zeal is something very strong. This is a very, very strong word here. Zeal compi- comprises the confluence of two different things love and hatred. When love and hatred come together, they come together in zeal. Intense love and intense hatred. The confluence of these things come together and they produce zeal. And this is the, this is what we should have for God, a zeal for God, a, a jealousy for Him. Jesus, when He cleansed out the money changers in the temple, He said, for zeal for your house has consumed me. For the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is what Jesus quoted when He ran out the money changers. Psalm chapter 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. We should have a zeal for God's holiness. We should love the things that God loves, and we should hate the things that God hates. That is one of the marks of a genuine believer. We love the things that God loves, and we hate the things that God hates. And finally, Paul says, what avenging of wrong. What avenging of wrong. And when you think of avenging, we shouldn't think of, you know, Captain America and Iron Man. The Corinthians did not want to avenge. The wrong which they wanted to avenge was not the wrong of others. The wrong that they wanted to avenge was their own wrong, was their own sin. A truly repentant person has no interest in defending himself. They want to make right what they've done wrong. A truly repentant person will never say something like, yeah, I was wrong and I'm sorry, but this is why. I did Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but let me tell you why. Yeah, but, but trying to excuse ourselves, that's not repentance. That's not repentance. That's not avenging what was wrong. Avenging what is wrong is, yes, it begins with confessing sin, admitting sin. But it also is, is fleshed out in a desire to make it right. A desire to make restitution. If you have wronged somebody, you try to make it right. You go to them and you make it right. And this is what the Corinthians wanting, were wanting to do. They were not interested in making excuses, defending themselves, excusing their sin. No excuse for sin. And they weren't doing that. They wanted to avenge what was wrong. They wanted to make restitution, to set all things right. In this, dear friends, we could have an entire sermon on each one of these seven elements. But this is what genuine repentance looks like. A love for God, a hatred for evil, a desire to make things right. All of these things, that it will be fleshed out in genuine repentance. And notice that the Apostle Paul says that godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. Genuine repentance cannot be done by one who is apart from Christ. Genuine repentance is in and of itself granted by God. God grants repentance. A lost person cannot repent. He can't do it. Repentance is granted by God, just as is faith. These are things that God must give. He must grant to us. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 25, God grants repentance. Acts chapter 5 verses 30 and 31, God grants repentance. Acts chapter 11 verse 17, God grants repentance. He grants it because we cannot do it ourselves. And when God grants that godly sorrow, leads to repentance, Paul says, unto salvation. Now, we shouldn't get too hung up there on the order because reading it, you might think that once you repent, then you get saved. No, that that messes up the order. When Paul says repentance unto salvation, what Paul is saying here is not saying that repentance comes first and then you get saved. When God grants new life, When he makes you regenerate in Christ, repentance will be the very first fruit of that new life in Christ. And it is repentance unto, in other words, repentance belongs in the sphere of salvation. Genuine repentance belongs in the sphere of salvation. And that repentance that will come immediately when God grants new life, when he makes someone who is dead in their sins to being alive in Christ, That will immediately result in repentance, and that repentance will be evident not only to the person who has repented, but it will be evident to everyone around him who knows him. And that repentance is unto salvation. That is the beginning of an entire life, and indeed an entire eternity with Christ, unto salvation. That leading to salvation, that word leading is not even in the text, it's supplied by the translators. But repentance comes when God grants it. And from that point forward, we are saved. And our eternity is secure in Christ. Not in us. Our eternity is secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. As we conclude, maybe you're not certain of where you are in your relationship with Christ. Maybe you're not certain if you've repented. Examine yourself, the Apostle Paul says, to see if you're in the faith. What kind of sorrow do you have over your sin? Is it a worldly sorrow? A sorrow that just tries to cover up your tracks? A sorrow that is worried about what would happen to you if your sin were exposed? But you still really like that sin? You still want it? You still enjoy it? That's a worldly sorrow. Or do you have a godly sorrow? Do you have a godly sorrow of your sin? Do you understand that your sin is first and foremost against God? And you grieve over your sin because your sin has grieved God. And do you have these fruits in your life? Now, do not rest in your salvation over your works. I'm not saying resting on your works is what leads to assurance of salvation. Not at all. But look at the fruit. Is there fruit in your life? God by His Holy Spirit bearing fruit in your life, this fruit, you have a godly sorrow over your sin. And if you're not certain that you do, confess your sins before God. Ask Him to grant you repentance. Repent from your sins. Place your faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ in what He did on the cross and then rest in Him. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. All of these things is the good fruit of godly sorrow. Let's close the word. Father, we do thank you that you do a work for us that we cannot do ourselves. Lord, we cannot gin up a godly sorrow on our own. It would never last. But you bear fruit that remains. And so Father, I pray even now that your Holy Spirit would do that work. That if there are those here who are lacking that godly sorrow, who are still in the worldly sorrow that leads to death, we pray that your Holy Spirit would make them alive, would grant that godly sorrow that leads to genuine repentance unto salvation. All for the glory of Christ. We thank you and we praise you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again,